Lord's Day 7, page 29. And this section of the catechism is dealing with salvation, the gospel, um, having already laid out the universal sinfulness of man and the judgment of God against men and the inability of man to do anything for his own salvation. And then it, it turns to, you know, where is then the hope uh, for sinful men to be reconciled to God and have the forgiveness of sins? And this is found in the gospel of Christ. In Jesus, who is the only mediator who can deliver us uh, from our sins. And so the last time we dealt with that issue of why it is necessary that the mediator uh, be both fully, fully God and fully man. He being the only one who can reconcile us to God. And that this is found uh, for us in the gospel uh, that is revealed uh, both in the Old Testament, but primarily then in the New, where these things are unfolded and laid out for us. And then in chapter 7, they're going to talk about the application of the work of Christ. To whom does it apply? Is it a universal uh, atonement or is it something that is given to all men? Or is it something that is specified or that is unique? And what is it uh, necessary for a person to partake of the benefits of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection? So this is the topic, the, ne the necessity of faith in Christ and how these things come about. So let's pray, and then after that, we'll begin our study. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, Lord, to be together today, Lord, for the breakfast that we've enjoyed this morning. Lord, we thank you for Mr. Michael and for the work that he does for us uh, to come and to prepare this uh, so that we can uh, benefit and have this blessing. Lord, we're grateful for the fellowship that we have with one another. And Lord, we're grateful uh, for a group of men uh, who are meeting uh, on a Saturday morning uh, not to uh, watch football, Lord, not to uh, get drunk or to enjoy some hobby, but that the primary reason for our gathering is to be with Christian men, Lord, to enjoy your goodness and to open your word and to seek to understand, Lord, to a greater degree, our own salvation and what you've done for us in Christ. So, Lord, we are grateful to have a gathering of men, of, uh, to be of such company. And, Lord, we pray that you might uh, bless our gathering today and that, Lord, this may be useful to us in the advancement of our salvation, in our own sanctification, Lord, that you might pour out your blessings richly upon us today. Father, as we now uh, turn to uh, our catechism, we pray that you give us, uh, Lord, a greater uh, mind uh, to understand and to know the gospel. Lord, we are grateful for uh, these men who have gone before us, Lord, that you have used uh, to lay down these doctrines, Lord, with such clarity and simplicity, Lord, to do all of that work for us uh, so that we might have an easy uh, way to remember and easy access, Lord, to these great truths. So, Lord, establish us in these things today. And, Lord, be with us and bless us. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Lord's Day number 7, which will begin with question number 20. Question 20, which says, Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? And the answer, no, only those who are saved, only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all of his benefits. We remember from Romans chapter 5 uh, that when the apostle there spoke of uh, sin and the condemnation that came upon all men, the judgment that is on, in, seen in the world today, that there is a universal nature to the sinfulness of man, that there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. And this all traces back to Adam's original sin. So when Adam sinned in the garden, he was a representative uh, and he sinned not merely for himself, but also for his posterity, for all of those who would descend from him. And as a result of his sin, uh, judgment and condemnation and sin has been passed down from generation to generation to all of those who are born from Adam, which is the entirety of the human race, right? This is why it's necessary for us to contend uh, theologically that the entire human race has its roots. All of it came from this one source who is our father, Adam. 
that Adam is the father of the entire human race and that every person on the planet today, the 8 billion people, if you could trace everyone's lineage back to the very beginning, every person would come from this original man, Adam, and his wife, Eve, right? And when Adam there as a representative, as a head of the human race, when he sinned in the Garden of Eden, what it did impacted not only himself, but also all of his posterity, all of those who would come from him. And this is why we are all born into a state of sin. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are born into this way. As it says in uh, Psalm 51 verse 5, that I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. There the, the prophet David recognizes that from the very beginning, from his birth, he was brought into the world with sin, with iniquity, with condemnation under the judgment of God. And this is universal. It touches every single person. So then the question is, <clears throat> as Adam's sin touched every person, then does Christ's righteousness touch every person? Is everyone in the world going to be saved through the righteousness of Christ? through the salvation that he has wrought and that he has brought about through his death and through his resurrection? And the answer here is no. Not all men are going to be saved, but only those who have true faith. That in order to partake of the benefits, the salvation that has been accomplished through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it is necessary for one to have true faith in Christ and to be grafted into him and to receive or to accept all of the benefits of his salvation. And such as do not believe, who do not have faith, who die in a state of unbelief, they remain in their sin and they are still under the judgment and condemnation of God. But such as do have true faith in Christ, then they are delivered from all of their sins. They have the forgiveness of sins and they are made righteous and they will receive all of the benefits, the blessings of eternal life and the fulfillment and consummation of their salvation. So the Bible does not teach universal salvation. It teaches universal condemnation, but then it teaches particular salvation or a particular redemption to a particular group of people, that being here described as those who have true faith, true faith. Matthew 7, 13 to 14. And again, this teaching is so clear and obvious in the Bible that... You, you can't, there's no way to maintain any belief in the authority of the Bible and also deny this truth. You ultimately just have to say, I don't believe what the Bible says in order to deny uh, the partic that not all men will be saved. Matthew 7, 13 to 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So there, clearly, there are two paths. One leads to eternal destruction. The other leads to eternal life. Well, the one way is broad and many enter through it. And the other way is narrow and there are few who find it. So there are few and many. It's not that everyone will find the way that leads to life. There are a few who will find the way that leads to life, and there are many who will go into the way of destruction. And this is the way it has been since the very beginning, that there are many people who will be condemned, and there are few who will be saved in the end. John chapter 1. John 1, verses 12 to 13. John 1, 12 to 13 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There, it's only those who receive him. They are the ones who have the right to become children of God, only those who believe in his name. Those who refuse to believe in the name of Christ, then they do not have a right to become children of God. And they are not children of God, but rather spiritually, they remain children of the devil. Then in verse 13, he describes what is the effectual cause? What is ultimately what brings this about? Of course, we do not deny the necessity of believing. It is necessary for one to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And it is our duty to call men to repent and to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But for a person to do this, to have the ability to do so, what is required? What is necessary? He must be born, not of blood. It's not dependent upon his blood or his ancestry, right? Where he came from, his connection to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or to any other man, nor of the will of the flesh. It does not come from the flesh of man, from the will of man, nor the will of man, right? So it cannot be your blood. It cannot be the will of the flesh. It cannot be the will of man. But ultimately, where does it begin? They must be born of God. It must begin with God. A man must be born again in order to enter into the kingdom of God. There is the necessity of new birth for a person to believe the gospel. John 3, 16 to 18. John 3, 16 to 18. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Here, God's love for the world is seen in that he gave his only begotten Son. He sent His Son into the world to die on the cross and to be raised for our justification. However, it is necessary for one to believe in Him. Only those who believe in Him, in His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, they will not perish. They will have eternal life. Here in 17, God didn't send His Son into the world to judge the world. Though all judgment has been entrusted to the Son, when Jesus came in His first coming, what was the purpose of his coming? But to offer up his life as a sacrifice for our redemption. He did not come to execute judgment on the world at his first coming, to destroy the world, but rather he came to offer his life as the sacrifice that would be the basis for the redemption of his people so that we might be saved through him. He who believes is not judged. But the one who does not believe, he says, has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those who do not believe in Christ are already under the judgment of God. God has already pronounced a judgment upon them that they are under the condemnation of God. And if they do not repent and believe in the only begotten Son, they will maintain that judgment into the life to come. And then they will be eternally judged and condemned. John 3.36 John 3.36 there it says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe or he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So there very clearly, there is this distinction between those who believe and those who do not believe or here do not obey, which is one and the same because we are commanded to repent and believe the gospel. And if we refuse to obey that commandment from Christ, then we are under the wrath of God. If we believe, then we will have eternal life. Romans 11, Romans 11, 16 to 21. Romans chapter 11, verses 16 to 21. It says, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off, so that I will be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches... He will not spare you either. Here, in talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and their relationship to Christ, the Jews, who are the natural branches, were broken off. They were broken off from the living tree, from the olive tree that bears this root uh, that brings about life and salvation. They were broken off. And what is the reason that they were broken off from the olive tree? Because of unbelief. 
But the Gentiles were grafted in, and why were they grafted in? You stand fast through faith. The one had unbelief, the other had faith. Here, it doesn't matter if one's a Jew or a Gentile. Unbelieving Jews will not go to heaven, but they will be condemned, and they are broken off because they are not connected to Christ. Believing Gentiles will go to heaven. They will have eternal life because they have been grafted into the living branch or the living tree that is the source of eternal life. And that life that is in the tree will be seen in the branches that are connected to the tree. So here it's obvious that there are some who are broken off and some who are grafted in. Some who do not believe and some who do believe. This is the hinge upon which it swings in terms of in the person, what is happening in them, those who believe have life, those who do not believe do not have eternal life. And it doesn't matter here, this goes back to John chapter 1, the blood doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if your blood is Jewish or if your blood is Gentile. What matters is faith. Faith working through love. That is the key. That is what matters in terms of our eternal destiny. Neither Jew nor Greek, circumcision nor uncircumcision. None of those things matter. Question 21. Then if faith is necessary, true faith, if this is the means by which God grafts us into Christ, then what is true faith? Right? What is true faith? Because there's also false faith that exists in the world. And so we need to understand what is true faith. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merit. The faith, this faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. This is a mouthful. There's much that could be said here, uh, and there is uh, much truth that is contained in these very short statements, which is the thing that's so wonderful about this catechism and these men of old, is they could say in a sentence or in a very short paragraph more than what you'll find in the average sermon of a church in a whole year, right? In a whole year. So this is what they are doing, and this is why they are so beneficial to us. True faith, he says, is sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. Faith and knowledge are inseparable, right? You cannot have true faith without having true knowledge and true understanding that comes from the Word of God. Now, I say this because many times people want to pit faith and understanding, faith and knowledge, uh, faith and doctrine or theology as if these two things are mutually exclusive. But this is certainly not the case. Now, it is possible for someone to have a bare, a dead knowledge, a knowledge that puffs up. And that we, don't, we do not commend. That is a very dangerous, dangerous and a very pernicious route that will lead to much uh, spooling and much defiling in the body of Christ. But just as there can be faith, that is, or just as there can be knowledge that is puffed up, that is an arrogant knowledge, a bare knowledge, Yet at the same time, there can never be true faith without knowledge. How can we have true faith if we don't have an understanding of what we're believing in, right? It's not blind. It's not bare faith. Faith must have an object, and that object must be truly and correctly understood, right? To some degree or to some measure. Certainly, we understand that all of us are growing, that none of us have perfect knowledge, and that we're all being conformed from one degree of glory to another, right? This is a part of our Christian life. But how can there be that beginning of faith without some knowledge of the things of God? Don't you at least have to understand that there is a God? Don't you at least have to understand that there is a mediator, that there is the Lord Jesus Christ? There has to be some knowledge of his person and of his work and why this redemption is necessary. There has to be some knowledge of sin, some knowledge of judgment. Yes, of course, we are growing in that knowledge. We come to a greater understanding of those things throughout our Christian life. But at the beginning, there has to be some measure of knowledge and understanding of what the Bible is teaching in relationship to God, to man, to sin, to salvation, right, to faith and repentance, right, we must come to an understanding of those things. And faith is a sure knowledge 
of those things that we are accepting as true based upon the Word of God. It trusts that what God says in His Word is true and accurate. This is the correct, accurate, rightful, true interpretation of the events and of what is going on in contrast to false religions and in contrast to human philosophy that are interpreting for us the world and what is going on. So for example, uh, psychologists, which are, uh, you know, it's like a, a form of uh, idolatry. You know, they're saying various things about the human condition, about what ills men, about why men have the problems that they do, the behavioral problems, the problems in relationships, the problems in marriage. Right? They're always talking about all of these things. But they're interpreting these issues, they're interpreting mankind from an ideology that is antithetical to the Bible. They're not depending upon the Word of God for the conclusions that they're coming to regarding man. But then the Bible addresses these issues as well. And the Bible tells us that all of the ills of men, everything that plagues man, all of his problems and issues, ultimately, what is the root of all those things? It is his own sin. Well, a believer will say, well, the Bible says it's sin, but this psychologist is saying it's not sin, it's poverty, it's his relationship with his parents, it's his upbringing, you know, there's all these other social factors that lead to these issues. That is where the real problem is. Well, a true believer will reject whatever is contrary to the Bible and say, I don't agree and believe those things. I believe what the Bible says. It is a sure knowledge of accepting as true what God has revealed to us in his word regarding whatever topic the Bible addresses. I'm going to believe what the Bible says. John chapter 17, verses 3 and then verse 17. John 3, John 17, verse 3, says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So there, eternal life is found in knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So can there be eternal life without knowing God? No, of course not. Can there be any knowledge of God without knowing Him through Jesus Christ whom He has sent? No, there cannot be any. So there must be knowledge, accurate knowledge, in order for there to be eternal life. And then sanctification comes in the truth. And what is the basis, the standard of truth? The Word of God. Your Word is truth. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 Verses 1 to 3. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So there, this assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. Right? Those things that we hope for, we have not seen. We've never seen them with our own eyes because hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Yet faith has a conviction of these things. But where does this conviction come from? How do we have this knowledge, this understanding of things that are not seen and to such a degree that we have conviction and assurance of these things? Well, he talks about in verse 3 one particular thing. Were any of us present when the world was created? Anyone in the room? No, no one here was present when the world was created. Did we see with our own eyes God create the world out of nothing? No, none of us saw that. But do we believe that? We believe it, and we believe it because of what? Because the Bible tells us so. Because of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where the Bible tells us how God created the world. It is a knowledge that comes from the Bible that we incorporate and that we believe because it comes from the Word of God, and God is declaring us these things. Are there rival understandings to this knowledge in the world today? Absolutely there are. There are many rival understandings. Every false religion has their own uh, ideas about the creation of the world, how the world came into existence. Atheism has its own ideas and philosophies about how the world came into existence. 
And these are in contradiction to what the Bible reveals in Genesis 1 and 2. For the believer, he's going to believe what the Bible says. And when something contradicts the Bible, he will say that that is a lie and this is true and this is what I'm going to, be, to believe. Even though he's not seen these things or experienced them, he's taking them by faith in the Word of God. That God's Word is trustworthy and it is true and there is no lie there. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Here, you believe that God is one. Is that a true statement? God is one. Yes, that is a true and accurate statement. Can a person be a believer without believing that God is one? No. It is necessary. That knowledge is necessary. Now, in this case, is that knowledge alone sufficient for salvation? No, the demons believe that and they shudder. But at the same time, you must have that. It must be a part of your faith, this knowledge that God is one. And where is this knowledge revealed for us? It's found in the Word of God. Then the next sentence, at the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merit. This knowledge, this faith, this confidence is not only in me, but also to others. Right? There is evidence to myself and to others that the salvation that God promises in His Word, He has granted this to me because of faith. Because of faith in Christ. Romans 4, 18 to 21. Romans 4, 18 to 21. It says, In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which has been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. There, Abraham, the promise that God had given to him, though that promise was not yet revealed, it was not yet fulfilled to him, he still believed it, and he had an assurance of these things, that was evident in his own life and would have also been evident to others as well, such as his wife, Sarah. She knew that he had this confidence in these things and she shared that confidence with him. So there, it is a full assurance of the things promised in the gospel, right? In the word of God. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There, we have peace with God. Certainly that peace will be multiplied in the life to come. But does the peace with God begin only in the life to come? No, it begins now, in this life, when we believe. When we believe and we are justified, the result is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have this confidence that what God has declared in His Word is indeed true. That all of my sins have been forgiven and that now, instead of being in a state of fear, a state of turmoil between God and I, now we have peace, right? There is reconciliation between the two parties. Romans 10.10, 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Again, this takes place at belief. When a person believes, when he confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart God raises him from the dead, the result at the moment of belief is righteousness and salvation. He has it as his possession at that time, right? He has it at that moment, not merely at some future date. And it is a full assurance that this is indeed true. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here, he calls us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Right? To do so, we must have an assurance that God will be merciful to us. Right? Because if we draw near to God in a state of sin, with his judgment and condemnation on us, what's going to happen to us? We're going to be consumed by the wrath of God because God is a consuming fire. For us to draw near to him, we must be assured that our sins, that which we had that made God our enemy, that all of that has been taken care of and that now we have terms of peace with God, that he is our father and that when I draw near to him, instead of receiving wrath and judgment, now I'm going to receive grace and mercy to help me in my time of need. And the gospel, belief in the gospel, gives us this confidence that we can draw near to God in such a way. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians 2, verse 20. There it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There, again, this confidence is not only to others, but also to me. And it's to me, not only in the life to come, it's to me in this present life. He is completely convinced that Christ lives in him. That God loves him. That Christ gave himself up for him as a sacrifice to bring about atonement for his sins. And this conviction, this confidence he has at the moment of his salvation. And he maintains that throughout the course of his life. Now certainly, because of our sin, because of the flesh, that confidence is subject to an increase and to a decrease. But the true believer will never be without some hope, some confidence in these things. When sin is there, then our confidence in those things is shaken. When we are living a godly life and walking faithfully with the Lord, then our confidence increases in the proper way. But it's always there. It's always there to some degree and to some measure. Now, this confidence has relationship specifically to the fact that God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation. This is what the gospel is dealing with. How a sinner can have his sins forgiven. How he can be made righteous in the sight of God. And how he can be saved from everything that the law could not save him from. How it is that we can have a good standing and be reconciled to God instead of being under his wrath and under his judgment and condemnation. This is what the gospel teaches. And when a person believes, he has confidence that God has indeed in Christ forgiven him of his sins. That God has in Christ granted to him everlasting righteousness. And that God has in Christ given him the hope of salvation. And that in the life to come, this salvation that has begun now will be brought to its completion and it will be manifested in its fulfillment in the life to come. That we will be eternally saved and we will never come under the condemnation of God. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. How a man who is unrighteous can be made righteous in the sight of God so that God accepts him, right? So that he has the favor of God instead of the disfavor of God. And where is this revealed at? In the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel teaches us how unrighteous men can be made righteous in the sight of God. Not on the basis of their own works, but on the basis of Christ and what he has done for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
here, this sanctifying is being set apart or being made holy, being made righteous in the sight of God. For only those things that are holy can be used in the worship of God or be used in the sight of God. This is why in the Old Covenant, under that worship, there were those items that were used for the worship of God in the tabernacle and in the temple. And those items had to be sanctified. They had to be set apart to be used in this holy way. And this is teaching the necessity of the people being sanctified and being set apart, being made holy. God is a holy God. So those who would draw near to God must be a holy people. We must be sanctified. We must be made completely righteous in order to be in the presence of God. Because how can sin, right? If we maintain, uh, if 99% of us is righteous and yet only 1% of our body remains unrighteous, are we fit to dwell with God for all eternity? No, because what would happen to us? We would be consumed. We would be consumed by His wrath and by His fury. Well, we are sanctified through what? What is the source that brings about our sanctification, the purification that makes us fit to be in the presence of God? The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It is His body offered on the cross for our sins that makes us righteous, that sanctifies us so that we now are able to draw near to God. Okay, all of this is out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This salvation that God gives to men is not based upon anything He sees in the man. It's not based upon the will of man. It's not based upon the blood of man. It's not based upon the goodness of man. It's not based upon the spirituality of man. All men, when God looks at the children of men, does He see in their natural state anyone who is exemplary? Anyone who rises above the rest. Anyone who is righteous or who has some measure of goodness. And that measure of goodness is the basis for which God chooses to give His salvation to this one and not to that one. No, He doesn't see anything. When God looks upon all of the children of men, what does He see? A lump of rotten, festering, disgusting sin. Every single one of us is a depraved, worthless, wretched sinner. So then, why does God do this? What is the basis? What motivated God to do this for sinful men? His mere grace. His grace and for the sake of Christ's merit. Not our merits. We do not add anything to our salvation. God does not bestow it to a man because he has mustered up some strength in himself and that he has reached out to take a hold of God, and because he reached out to God, then God reaches out to him. This is not the case at all, because we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. It is on his grace and on the sake of Christ's merits alone that we are made righteous. We don't add anything to what Christ has done. Our baptism does not add anything to what Christ has done. Our good works do not add anything to what Christ has done. Our godliness does not add anything to what Christ has done. Our faith, our repentance, which are necessary for salvation, these are not merits that we present to God and are the basis for Him giving us salvation. These are simply the means that God uses to give to us all of the benefits that have been purchased for us based upon the merits of Christ. It is His life his death, His resurrection that purchases the entirety of our redemption. And we contribute zero to it. Absolutely nothing. So then, whoever boasts should boast in who? We should boast in the Lord. Right? Boast in the Lord and not in ourselves. What do you have that you have not received? If then you have received it, why do you boast? As if you did not receive it. Romans chapter 3, 20-26. Romans 3, 20 to 26. There it says, By works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift 
by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There, clearly, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. Our obedience, our keeping of the law does not justify us. It does not make us righteous. Even as believers, when we want to obey God, right? We want to live a godly life. We want to live a life pleasing to Him. Does that obedience, that is the result of our salvation, does that add to it? Is it something that we're doing to complete what Christ has begun? No, all of it always is based solely upon the work of Christ, what He has done for us. And He says that this justification is a gift that comes by grace. It is a gift of God that comes through His grace, His goodness, His kindness to sinful men. Galatians 2. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16 says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by works of the law no flesh will be justified. Very, very clear, right? Very clear, simple, easy to understand. No one will be justified by works of the law, but only by faith in Christ. Here, the Bible puts these two in contrast to one another. Really, in the book of Galatians, this is what he's dealing with the whole time. Works of the law as the basis of one's justification versus faith in Christ. And it is only faith in Christ that can result in justification. No one in the Old Testament, no one in the New Testament will ever be justified by their own obedience to the law of God. But only the law brings condemnation because we fail to keep it. The only way the man can be justified is through faith in Christ. And then even faith in Christ, it is not our faith that justifies us. It is our faith that connects us to Christ. And who is the one that justifies us? It is Christ. It is His righteousness that justifies us. Our faith simply connects us to Christ so that all of His benefits and all of His grace and righteousness flow into us and they become our very possession. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. There it is by grace through faith in Christ. This is the only way, not a result of works. It is the gift of God. God gives it as a gift. Now, does that mean there is no place for obedience to God? That there's no place for good works? No, of course not. Here he says, we've been created for good works and we ought to walk in them, but those good works are not the basis of our justification. They are the fruit, the result of the justification that we have by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And even those things are produced in us by the work of the Spirit. Okay, then the last thing. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. The faith necessary for salvation, and we believe that, right? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Those who do not believe will not have salvation. So faith is the condition set by God by which a man must partake of the blessings of Christ's salvation. However, how is this possible for men who are dead in their sins how can they have faith? How can it be produced within them when their heart is dead and it is a cesspool of wickedness and faith is good, right? Faith is a good thing, right? That is pleasing to God, but everything about us is rotten and evil. So where does the faith come from? Well, it's produced in us by the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit 
that he produces in us through the hearing of the gospel. There is the outward hearing of the gospel. Can anyone be saved without hearing the gospel? No, it's impossible. There must be the hearing of the gospel. But accompanying the hearing of the gospel, there must be the inward call of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must produce faith in the person so that they will actually believe the gospel that they heard. And this is the means that God uses to bring about salvation. All of it coming from the Lord. Acts 16, 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. There, Paul was speaking. He was preaching the gospel to them. And God opened the heart of Lydia to hear and to believe these things, to respond in a favorable, positive way to what she was hearing through the preaching of the gospel. So God opened her heart. He is the one that did it. And of the three persons of the Trinity, which person is the one who does this? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God opened her heart. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The power of God that results in salvation for sinners is found and contained in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the source of the church's power. And without the gospel, the means that is given, the outward preaching of the gospel then the church has no power at all. We have no power to bring about salvation and eternal life in men without the gospel. And this is why the greatest treasure the church possesses is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we depart from the gospel, then what are we? We're just a social club, right? Like the Lions Club or the Masons or uh, the Rotary Club, whatever. We're just a group of people getting together to have breakfast, to have a good time, to you know, promote morality or whatever in the world. But can we actually help sinners be justified in the sight of God if we abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ? No, we are of no eternal spiritual benefit at all. So our greatest treasure is the gospel. So what must we guard with all of our life? We must guard the gospel the treasure that has been entrusted to us and never give it up, right? Never give it up, but do everything we can to guard it in our own day and also to preserve it for future generations. And we know that if the gospel is the power of God for salvation and the devil desires nothing more than for men to be condemned and he knows that the church's power is in the gospel, then where is he going to attack us at? Where would he, he will tempt us to abandon the gospel, to part from the gospel, so that there is no more salvation and power in the church. So we must be aware of this, and we must guard it with all of our might. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Without faith, there is no salvation, right? That is clear. Well, faith cannot come without hearing, and hearing is the word of Christ. We must hear the word of the, of the gospel, the word of Christ, for there to be faith, and there must be faith for a man to call upon the name of the Lord and for that man to be saved. 1 Corinthians 1, 21. 1, 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Here, this wisdom of God the wisdom of God is found in the foolishness of the cross. That God would send His Son into the world to die on the cross for our sins. And that this would be the basis for the church's salvation. For our redemption would be founded upon the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That God would bring life out of death. When the world hears that, it is foolish to them. It is stupid to them. But for us who is being saved, it is the very wisdom of God. We see in that gospel, we see in the person and work of Christ, that this is the basis of our righteousness, of our salvation, of our eternal life. And this is what we believe and this is what we cling to. 
It is the message preached to save those who believe. And that is what we must hold to. This is what you see churches so quickly abandoning in our own day. Because you usually cannot grow massive churches with large crowds of people through the message of preaching. But they want to add all of these other tricks and gimmicks to it because that's what draws a crowd. But here, he says, we're not doing that. We, we want to embrace the foolishness of God. And we understand that this will be foolishness to the world and that many people will reject it and want nothing to do with it. However, it is the power of God for salvation. And the power is seen not in the multitudes of people who come, but in what it produces in those who are saved. The change of life, the change of the families that are in the household of faith. That is where the power of God is seen, not in two billion people coming and becoming members of our church. Right? If that ever happened, probably something is fishy. Right? Something is not going right. But if there is a handful, yet in those handful of people, you see holiness, simplicity of living, godliness in the home, raising the children in the fear of the Lord, upright, wholesome families, and you see that in contrast to what is going on in the world, then you must conclude that God is among these people, right? That there is something that has happened here that, that is different. And what brought about this change but the gospel of Jesus Christ? Okay, that, it, that's the big one here. Now, question 22. What then must a Christian believe? What must we believe in order to have salvation, in order to partake of all of these benefits from Christ? All that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. Now, when they say Catholic, let me be very clear, they're not talking Roman Catholic, okay? So usually Baptist or anyone uh, Protestant, when they hear Catholic, they, their head explodes. It's like, well, that's a Roman Catholic. Obviously, that's not what they mean. Catholic is simply a term that means universal. Universal uh, and it is used in that way. Certainly that term has been co-opted by Roman Catholicism, but they don't mean it in that sense. So we have to let people use words and use it in the way in which they mean it, right? So that their context is giving us the meaning of those things. What we must believe is everything promised to us in the gospel. And then the articles of this, the doctrine or the teaching that is in the gospel, right? And the gospel is found from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible spread throughout it in all of these different places, these articles have been summarized for us in the teachings of the true church, right? The Christian faith that has been laid down in these articles that they will then talk about in question number 23. Matthew 28, 19. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There, making disciples of all the nations is seen in, in teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. There is truth, there is knowledge, there is understanding that they must be taught in order for them to be saved. And this is what we must be teaching and this is what we must hold to. We ourselves must believe what the gospel teaches us concerning the way of salvation, concerning the need for salvation, concerning who God is and how we can be saved through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what we must be teaching and believing in order to be saved. John chapter 20. John 20, 30 through 31. It says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Here the apostle tells us that everything that is written down in this book, he could have written many more things. There's much that Jesus did when he was on earth, more teachings, more miracles, more experiences that they had with him. They could have written much more down. So great the writings could have been. He says in chapter 21, 25, 
that not all of the books of the world could even contain these things. They could have written so much. But what is written here is sufficient for us to know that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Christ that God sent into the world. He is the Son of God in that believing in Him, we can have life in His name. Right? These are the essentials. These are the things that we are teaching that are necessary for one to believe in order to have salvation. And everything written here is written so that we might be convinced that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, and that salvation can be found only in Him by believing in His name. Then question 23, what are these articles? Here they give a summary of these doctrines or of these articles. And this is a early church creed. One of the earliest church creeds is called the Apostles' Creed. And this is what they reproduce here. And this was uh, written in the early church to give a summary of the doctrines necessary to believe in the gospel in order to have salvation. And as a way for the people to be instructed in these things so that they could remember and know all of these things are true and necessary for us to believe. So this is the Apostles' Creed. And certainly in the history of the church, there are various creeds, confessions, catechisms written where they are summarizing the doctrines of the Bible and putting them in a very short, succinct form for the sake of memory so that we can be instructed in these things and then to use those as building blocks to further teaching and further discussion in these truths. But so that someone can have a very quick, short summary of these truths, they can memorize it, and then they can carry it with them all the time. And this uh, Apostles' Creed is a very short one, and it's really easy to memorize and remember. And if someone does, then there are articles here that are building blocks or pillars of our faith and what we must believe in order to be saved, right? And these things are dealing with the main things and the plain things of the Bible. Not dealing with the minutiae and those things that are more difficult and more obscure. There is a place for those things and there's a place for us to talk about them. But the majority of the Bible is not dealing with those things. But rather it's dealing with the main things and the plain things. Namely that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, and that by believing in Him we may have life in His name. This is the main purpose of what the Bible is teaching us. Salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, here are these articles, and again, this is the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. Is that a true statement? Yes, it is. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. Also, true statement. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Christian church. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Here, these are essentials. These are things that all Christians must believe in order to be saved. We must have a knowledge and an understanding of these realities and be growing in our knowledge and understanding of these things. Now, a couple of things to point out. One, the majority of this creed is describing to us which person of the Trinity? The second person of the Trinity. And that is important because how do we come to know the true and living God? through Jesus Christ whom He has sent. The majority of it focuses on Jesus Christ and what He has done in order to accomplish our salvation. Though it does address God the Father and it does address God the Spirit, the majority is focused on Christ because it is through Christ that we come to know the one true and living God. Also, when it says that He descended into hell, there is some debate over exactly what they mean by this. I take that to mean that He descended from heaven to earth that Jesus existed as the Son of God for all eternity and was with the Father, and that He descended to earth, and then on earth He suffered and died on the cross, and He endured all of the punishment 
that we would endure in hell for all eternity on the cross. I don't think that he descended, that his spirit was cast into hell for three days after he was on the cross. Though there are some in the history of the church who hold to that. I think that the passage this is taken from simply means that he descended to the lower parts, that is the earth. He, he was in heaven, he took on human flesh, he descended and came down to the earth, and here on the cross, he suffered all of the torments of hell that we would experience in his person on the cross, and there he quenched the wrath of God for us. So that's the way that I would interpret and understand that. And then the last one, I believe a holy Catholic Christian church. There again, they don't mean holy Roman Catholic Christian church. They just mean that there is a church that is the body of Christ that transcends all time and all place. From Genesis to Revelation, there is the church of Jesus Christ. All of those who will be redeemed by Him and every single person who is redeemed by Christ is a member of the Holy Catholic Church, meaning the universal church that has existed in all ages and exists in the world wherever people believe the gospel. So that we are not the only Christians on this earth. We are a part of the Holy Catholic Christian Church, but we are not the exclusive members of that church. There are other people in our part of the world, and there are other people on the other part of the earth who are a part of that. And there are people who died long before us who were a part of that. And if the world continues as it is, there will be people who have not yet been born who will be a part of that church. Such all of those who have received salvation from Christ. They are all a part of this church. And we will all have communion in the life to come. Right? The communion of the saints begins now in our local manifestations and will be brought to its consummation in the life to come when we will be in perfect communion with all of God's saints for all eternity.